Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Stolen Goodbyes podcast with me, Karen Rice. This is being recorded remotely due to the COVID-19 restrictions. Today, I'm joined by Gordon Bonner from Leeds, who lost his wife of 63 years, Muriel, to COVID-19 on the 28th of April, 2020. She was 83 years old. Welcome, Gordon. Good morning. Thanks for joining the podcast. 63 years together, that's a very long time. Uh, a lot of history. Could I begin by asking how you met, how your romance started? It's a slightly complicated story, and it's one that my grandchildren in particular find fascinating. Uh, As I said to you earlier, I was a regular soldier, professional soldier. I joined the army at 15, and I retired finally in 1994, some 45 years later. Um, At the time, I was 23 years old and I was stationed in Hong Kong. And in 1954, I received a letter from a girl. And the salutation began, dear friend, and we became pen friends. Gordon, can I ask, how is it that she wrote to you? Ah, well, let's go back to 1953. I was at home on leave prior to embarkation to go overseas. And I'd been down a place called the Roller Drome, which is in Rosville Road in Leeds, but no longer exists. I'd been roller skating, typical young male showing off. I took a tumble and broke my wrist. I finished up in A&E in a, in a hospital that's no longer there, but I sat next to a redhead girl called Sheila Armstrong. Me being me, chatted her up. And we enjoyed each other's company for a while. And then, of course, I got on the boat uh, and disappeared overseas. And Muriel told me that sometime later, uh, Sheila Armstrong said to Muriel, because they worked in the same office, would you like to write to a lonely soldier? She did. And thus the story began. That's wonderful. How did you feel when you got her letter? Difficult to say because it's such a long time ago, but I was curious and I was interested. But there's no doubt about it that in the following two years, uh, the correspondence naturally, in terms of uh, mural each to the other, uh, we became quite close in, in, in that our letters were intimate. Not that, it's, uh, not that it has the connotations of today, but we... We found we had common interests and, and we became, uh, you know, we decided that when I come home in, in December 56, we would meet. How was that and meeting? I, the ship arrived in Liverpool. I caught a train from Liverpool to Leeds. I'd already informed Muriel by letter, uh, the expected time of arrival. And we often laughed about this, but <clears throat> because Hong Kong is semi-tropical, arriving back into the UK in the middle of December was a 
bit of a shock to the system. So not only was I in full uniform, because in those days, soldiers moved from point A to point B in uniform and full marching service order. And I had on a, a, a uniform and a large overcoat, and Mel was standing on the bridge looking down at the platforms, and she said when she saw me, because she recognized from our exchange of photographs, she said, you were so huge, I nearly ran. <laughs> but she, fortunately, she didn't. And within a few days of me coming home, just before Christmas, uh, December 56, we announced we were going to get married. But to reassure her parents, we decided to put the marriage off till October 57. And the reason I mention that is because thereby hangs another family story. I'd been posted to Borden, which was a technical training area for my corps, which was the Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers. And I had been selected for a long term technical training course, which would last 20 months. And of course, the syllabus and schedule is very demanding. It would, it would require all my attention to ensure that I didn't waste my time or the Army's time and fail. So I said to Muriel, I've got this course, it starts in September. Do you want to get married before or after the course? And she, as quick as a flash, said, before. <laughs> so when we went home and spoke to mother, my future mother-in-law, we said, uh, things have changed. We decided to bring the marriage forward from October to August. Mother-in-law said, why? What have you done? <laughs> because in those days, <laughs> one did not indulge in sexual intercourse until you were married. And that led to a term, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, a shotgun marriage. Yes. Where, where those who unfortunately became pregnant before uh, getting married uh, would have a father-in-law with a shotgun standing over them while they actually married, whether they wanted to or not. So that was the, the background to the first family sort of tradition. So we married in August 1957, and thus began a long, wonderful marriage. Okay, Gordon, can I ask you, what was Muriel like as a person? I'm biased, of course. I found her, as a wife and a mother, interesting and easy to talk to. She conducted her affairs with a natural, with a grace and a natural humility and a human warmth that reached out and embraced uh, people around her. And over a period of time, she became my, she became a much-loved companion, confidant and friend. Sorry about that. That's fine. Still, still very painful to think about it. But that's what she was like. And she was a typical Yorkie. And the big family joke was the only reason I married her is because she made good Yorkshire pudding. Other, the other thing about it was because I was on three months leave and because I wined and dined her during our courtship, she had to put money into the pot. And the other family joke was that I didn't marry her, she didn't marry me for her my money, but I married her for her money. That's funny. And such was the way of life in those days that Mira and I actually started our marriage 
in um, a furnished accommodation provided by the army with my first wage packet in my hand. And we literally started from nothing. Can I ask you, what were your feelings, emotions when you saw her, when you came off the boat from Hong Kong, when you first laid eyes on her? What, was your, what were your feelings, your impressions? I won't talk about love at first sight because we we had developed uh, a meeting of minds through correspondence. But I liked what I saw and I felt that I hadn't made a mistake. And, and although I'd not actually proposed to her at that time, by implication and the tone of our correspondence, there was an expectation that when we met, we would develop and probably go on to marry. So I had no doubts when I first saw her, that she was the one for me. Wonderful. Lovely story. Can I ask you, Gordon, what her most lovable quality was? Loyalty. I have many gifts in my life, but the most important gift I ever had was her total love and loyalty and devotion that she brought to our marriage. And there's no doubt about it. She was the matriarch of the family and the bedrock on which we uh, conducted our marriage. Did you have children? We had three children, uh, two boys, Michael and David. David, unfortunately, uh, passed away when he was 51 because he was a diabetic and um, he developed complications. And I have a daughter, Catherine, who lives in Australia with her family out there. Could I ask you, on a daily basis, what do you miss most about Muriel? When you love somebody in the way that Muriel and I loved each other, one of the most important things, first of all, there is a loving presence in your life. But I think what I miss most of all is the actual physical contact in terms of I'd hold her hand or uh, I'd open the door for her. Or, in other words, the... The, the social intercourse of daily contact. And I miss that. I really do. It, it, it still grieves me. I still haven't got used to living on my own. Does that make sense, what I've said? Yes. You know, and that's really what, that's what, that's what I miss most of all, the fact that she simply isn't there. It's, um, I live in the hinterlands of despair and des desolation, and I don't think it will ever diminish. All I've got to do is learn to adjust and live with it. Are there any highlights of your relationship that you look back on now? Any memories that make you laugh or make you smile, oh, yes. cherish? Yes. Uh, we go back to Singapore in the 19, early 1960s. Uh, by that time, I was a young star son. I had two boys and we had discussed the possibility of having uh, a, a third child, but I was particularly interested as a man in having a daughter. And we often laugh about it now. Thankfully, Muriel became pregnant and gave birth to Catherine on the 7th of December, 1962, at BMH Hospital in Singapore to Catherine. And I remember I was so excited by the event that um, when I rang the hospital initially, the sister said, you have a daughter. I put the phone down and I walked out of the hospital and I had to turn around and go back and ring her again 
and get her to confirm that I did have a daughter. And she must have thought I was nuts. But <clears throat> the family joke again about that is that I often used to pull Muriel's leg. That the reason that Catherine appeared on the scene was the result of a a convivial night in the sergeant's mess, and she and she and I have both been had a few snifters. <laughs> and then, because there was an element of reluctance for Neil to have a third baby, but nonetheless, once the child came, uh, Catherine was an absolute delight, and we loved her to bits. Oh, that's a, a wonderful story. So, in 2010, um, Muriel developed dementia. And then she was two years later in a wheelchair. You became her full-time carer until she had a, a serious fall resulting in a head injury in 2018. Is that correct? When she went into the care home in 2018, I visited her every single day without fail from half past six in the evening till 10 o'clock at night. And I used to put her to bed at 10 o'clock, I'd wash her, dress her, put her night clothes on, put her to bed, and uh, I'd kiss her goodnight, and then I would say, goodnight, sweetheart. And she always said to me, I love you, Gordon Bonner. And then I would close the door to the bedroom and come home to an empty house. Emotionally, that was very difficult because we'd been together for a long time. We were, we were so close in, in terms of mental connection, that we could often hold a conversation without speaking. Now, people might seem that's a bit weird, but I can assure you we could communicate without speech. You were very devoted. You were spending every evening in the care home while she was there. Which care home was that, Gordon? Home Care One, HC1, they called themselves. The largest care home organisation in the country. 22,000 beds. 20, you know, 22,000 staff. Um, I had no complaints with the pastoral um, care that she received, but I'll tell you about lockdown when it starts. But getting back to, to Mural and um, COVID-19, etc. on the 16th of March, 2020, uh, I went to the home as normal, and I was denied access because of COVID-19 lockdown. The, 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 the country went into national lockdown on the 23rd, as you know. How did, so, you, how did you feel at that moment to be told that you couldn't well, see Muriel? To be frank, I was devastated. I was shocked and angry. Uh, but I, And what... What exacerbated that particular situation was the configuration of the building where Muriel lived was such that the only way I could get to a window to look in to look through a window and see her was by means of an inner courtyard. But in order to get into the inner courtyard, you had to go through the home, and of course, so I couldn't see her. So I never saw Muriel after the 16th of March until the 28th of April, but let's go back 10 days prior to that. On the 17th of April, Muriel had a fall in the home, and quite a heavy one, and um, she went to A&E, and she was assessed, 
and they put her in a general medical ward initially for observation because of her past history of neurosurgery. They wanted to make sure that um, she hadn't banged her head and, and her bleed stopped. At 0135 hours on the 18th of April, the telephone rang and it was a medic and he, he said to me, I've got to inform you that we tested Mural for COVID-19 on admission. We have identified her as being positive with COVID-19 and we have moved her to a specialist care unit. How did you that feel at that moment to know that she had COVID-19? Well, interestingly enough, it did not come as a complete surprise. There are two reasons for that. Uh, I had doubts about the firewall um, uh, sanitation, the, the, the uh, admission of people into the care home without being properly checked before they went in. They didn't check their temperature or their, whether they had symptoms or anything like that. So I wasn't surprised that she had, she was diagnosed with COVID-19. Is your belief that she contracted COVID-19 in the care home? Absolutely, because I was there every day until the 16th of March and I was locked out on the 16th of March and I still haven't shown any symptoms of COVID-19. So I was in the same exposure window as she was, so it must have been carried into the home after lockdown started. But <clears throat> let's go back to the 18th of April now. I'm in hospital and I'm barred from going to see her in hospital. Now, if ever there was a time when she needed to see me or for me to be there, was when she was very ill in hospital. But the only thing I, the only support I got, and I am grateful for it, because the sister who religiously every day rang me with a report. And generally speaking, the report was, she's quiet, she's calm, she's comfortable, she's in no pain, she has an elevated temperature, but at this stage, no cause for concern. And I had 10 days of that. And I'm eternally grateful to the sister, bearing in mind that she's got a ward full of about 40 patients in a similar state to Mural. What she did was extraordinary, as far as I'm concerned. However, at 1400 hours on the 28th, which was Mill's final day, I got a routine report and uh, that was that. At 1700 hours, the phone rang. It was the ward sister. Uh, J43 was the actual ward in Leeds, Leeds St. James's Hospital. How soon can you get in? I said 30 minutes, and I did. I was suited and booted as if I was a bloody spaceman. And I went right into the ward, which is really is the toxic center of contagion with COVID-19. When I arrived, Meryl was in extremis. She was extremely agitated. I spoke to her, she didn't respond to me. And I believe that she wasn't even aware that I was there. Being a military man, I am used to dealing with stressful uh, 
situations, even though it did involve murals pending death. And I, I was able to observe that every time when the staff tried to subdue her, if that subdue her, if that's the right word, in other words, she's thrashing about and they're trying to calm her down. As soon as anybody touched her, she started climbing. And I knew what that was. She was drowning and she was trying to get to the surface. And, and, and the, the one thing that really haunts me about her death is I could, I could see her face now struggling for air. It was a titanic struggle. So, so, so strong was her, 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 her fight for life. Her lips, she was sucking air just as if she was trying to suck air through a straw. And her lips formed a perfect circle where she was trying to draw in air. I'd only been in the ward about three or four minutes when uh, a young man poked his head round the, the door, took a look, went away, and about three or four minutes later, the sister came in with a needle, and she said to me, the doctor's given me a, a, a medicine which will help her breathe. Now, I didn't say anything, but that did not ring true, and I thought to myself, I know what that is, and that was a a large dose of ketamine and probably morphine because uh, within a few minutes after the uh, dosage was administered she began to calm down and eventually she went to sleep and for the next hour uh, myself and a young nurse the other side of the bed we sat there and gradually the interval between each respiration became longer and longer and each rise and fall of the chest became shallower. And while all this was going on, I said to the nurse, I've got a letter from my granddaughter in Australia that I've been asked to read. And the nurse said, well, why don't you? Because she'll probably be able to hear you anyway. So I read her the letter uh, and I found that emotionally devastating because it was a final farewell. And the actual moment of death, I, we didn't actually notice it because she slipped away so quietly, it was some time before we realized she'd gone. And that was what happened to Mill. And that's now been repeated thousands of times. I, I feel for the people who are having to deal with it as well. Gordon, do you wish that you could have seen her earlier, that you would have been allowed into the hospital earlier when she would have known that you were there? I would have liked to have gone, but I was denied access by, by the COVID restriction. I know it's futile, futile rather, to talk about if, you know, if I'd done this, if I'd done that. But it is fair to say, had I known on the 16th of March what was in store, I would have, regardless of the consequences, removed Mural from the home, but I didn't. And as a result, she caught COVID uh, and she died. And that's the only regret I have, that I did not bring her out to home. There might have been a legal problem because she was under the... I'm not quite sure where, what her status was, but I know that the um, mental health 
uh, Capacity Act was involved and she had a social worker. And I think that once, once the local council accepted the fact that uh, they would pay her fees, they more or less became her guardian. And I, you know, so there's no point in speculating about it. But had I realized, had I known, I'm convinced I would have removed her from the home. But that's just regrets. Tell me about Muriel's funeral. As if being denied. Bear in mind that when Muriel died on the 28th, that was the first time I'd seen her, 28th of April. That's the first time I'd seen her since 15th of March. Now, to sit and watch her die like that was a shocking experience and one that will haunt me until I die. But as if that's not bad enough, to suddenly discover that due to COVID restrictions, we were not allowed a proper funeral made me very angry. But um, I had to face up to the reality that like it or not, we were only allowed 10 people to any sort of ceremony. We certainly could not have a service in the crematorium. So what happened was our funeral director was very good. He said, what I will do, um, I know a local, uh, I know the local padre or vicar, as you call them, uh, very well. Before we take her to the crematorium, you can bring the limited number of your family to the, uh, uh, my chapel of rest. So the ten of us stood round Nero's coffin in the chapel of rest, and the padre led us in prayers and a couple of hymns. And then we went outside the funeral parlour and, and Mural was carried out, loaded into the hearse. We all then got into our cars and we followed the hearse to the crematorium at Eden. And then we had to stand in the car park and watch because the car park was sort of, uh, here's a bit chapel over there. And I watched six men come out of the chapel, unload the, the coffin walked through the doors to the chapel and the last time the last thing i saw of mural was the tail end of her coffin as it passed between and the doors closed behind her that was the last i ever saw of her. the result was of course is that i never got a closure and for weeks afterwards i still had this weird feeling that she was in lockdown in the home i hadn't i could not I still hadn't accepted or was able to really visualize that she really had gone and it took me a long time to get around to that. And it wasn't until I went to St. Paul's Cathedral for that service and when the service started, the, the, the Bishop of London opened up the prayers and we had a minute's silence. And during that minute, Meryl came to me and told me not to be sad. And I did come away from that service with a form of closure. Does that make sense? I'm sorry if I get emotional, but it's still bloody hard. Of course it is. You're fine. You know. So that, that really is the story of it all. What I'd like to do now, because... Um, uh, I'm telling you everything, and it's helping me, actually. I said to you that Mill's 84th birthday was the 18th of this month. 
In the evening, I was half asleep watching television in the front room. And all of a sudden, I sensed that she was there. She never spoke to me. Not like she did in the cathedral. And I suddenly understood that memories, which, which had become very painful because grief is the price we pay for love, and memories fuel that grief. Um, I suddenly realized that I should not regard memories as shackles to burden my soul, but they should be worn as a garland around my shoulders and make joyful use of those memories to communicate through the barrier that exists between the quick and the dead. And that was uh, a moment when I felt at long last I was able to accept the fact that Mill is no longer here. And if you think I'm nuts to be like that. No, 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 not at all. That's very beautiful, very poetic. Tell me, Gordon, um, what emotions are you left with now? Well, I'm lonely, obviously, in the fact that I have a personal loss, but I'm not lonely in that I have tremendous support from uh, one of the advantages of living where I live now. I've got some superb neighbours and they've given me a lot of support, especially the family next door. They've got a daughter called Louie, she's six, and I've developed quite a relationship with her. And she's funny and she's lovely. The other day uh, we were talking and I said to her, how old are you, Lily? She said, I'm six and a quarter. So I said, oh, well, I'm 86 and a half. And she was most impressed by that half. And I suddenly realized she needs to be impressed by parts of the year because at my age, three months is a long time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, uh, particularly in the evenings, uh, I've got my grandson, Alex, living with me. Um, he's Catherine's uh, middle child. And Catherine, like me, had two boys and a girl. Isn't that interesting? Alex is the middle child and youngest son. But Catherine decided that when Meryl died, Alex should come home. Uh, and he's been living with me since December 2019. And I'm glad he's around. Uh, because he's a railway engineer, of course, he's at work every day. So I still spend a lot of time on my own. But fortunately, I get a lot of help from the military family. I, 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 have, uh, I belong to a number of military groups on Facebook, and I talk to military colleagues every single day. And there's no doubt about it that the support they provided has been an absolute godsend. Gordon, can I ask you, how do you feel about the way that the government, Boris Johnson's government, has handled the pandemic? There are two things about that. First of all, a lot of people are criticizing the government. But let's be fair about it. Although they're politicians, they are human. And they were, they were dealing with it, the unknown in the same way that we were. And they're human, so they're bound to make mistakes. But what I do believe is that when, when we can come to a conclusion that the pandemic, it'll never go away. It'll be like polio and 
smallpox and tuberculosis, it'll be with us for a long time to come. But when it gets down to acceptable levels, there's got to be some form of inquiry as to what happened, what went wrong, what could have been done better. We've got to learn an awful lot of lessons from that. Not least of which, which is the bee in my bonnet, I believe that the way in which we care for our elderly people, particularly those who have to go into care homes, is not fit for its purpose. And this piecemeal uh, provision of care for the elderly through private homes is no longer acceptable. There's got to be some form of regulation. Now, the reason I asked for that was there was no central direction in the policies for controlling the virus in the homes. Uh, for example, in, in um, McNeil's care home, uh, whenever I, I went up, between the 16th of March and the 17th of April, I went up on a number of occasions to take things like some soap or some clothing or, or bits and pieces. And the procedure was ring the bell, put the parcel on the step, step back, somebody would come and take it in. And whenever they came, all they had on was an apron and gloves. There was no personal protection equipment. And when I wrote to HC1 about these COVID restrictions of things and things and procedures for containing the contagion, I asked them why they didn't have any, uh, P did they have any PPE? They wouldn't admit that they had it. And they said, in any case, uh, it was the government fault. And yet that company paid out £43 million in dividends the year before. And if I'd have been in charge of that lot, the first thing I would have been doing would have been buying private testing facilities and PPE equipment so they to ensure all my staff were properly protected. But they all, they, as long as the government has responsibility, as far as they were concerned, that's the end of it. So there's not only got to be an inquiry, as far as I'm concerned, about the whole business from a national point of view, there's also got to be an inquiry into the chaos that existed in the care home. And the way the care home care is provided for the elderly has got to be overhauled. And if nothing else, it's got to be regulated in the same way that the NHS. Can I ask you um, just one final question? What's the most important message you want to share with the world in terms of what you've been through? From a personal point of view, I want to reach out to the, the same people who suffered like I have. When you think about it, there is a huge well of grief out there that is seeking relief and closure. And the only thing that I would like to say to them is that grief is the price we pay for love. And as I said to you earlier, memories are not shackled to burden our soul, but our garlands to be warm, to remember with joy and happiness the ones that we've lost. Mm -hmm.